Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. After decades in the shadow of the reigning model for Alzheimer's disease, alternative explanations are finally getting the attention they deserve. That's next in the first of our two episodes about Alzheimer's disease. Space travel depends on clever math. Find unexplored solar systems in Quantum Magazine's new daily math game, Hyperjumps. Hyperjumps challenges you to find simple number combinations to get your rocket from one exoplanet to the next. Spoiler alert, there's always more than one way to win. Test your astral arithmetic at hyperjumps.quantamagazine.org. It's often subtle at first, a lost phone, a forgotten word, a missed appointment. By the time a person walks into a doctor's office worried about signs of forgetfulness or failing cognition, the changes to their brain have been long underway. Changes that we don't yet know how to stop or reverse. Alzheimer's disease, the most common form of dementia, has no cure. Ridhi Patira is a behavioral neurologist in Pennsylvania who specializes in neurodegenerative diseases like dementia. Memory is fascinating. What makes us human is memory. Dealing with these patients can be very mentally taxing everyday basis because there's not much you can do. There is no effective treatment. There is no medicines. It's really a lot of time. Supportive counseling, education, what to do, still gives some hope, but realistic hope. Three decades ago, scientists thought they had cracked the medical mystery of what causes Alzheimer's disease with an idea known as the amyloid cascade hypothesis. It accused a protein called amyloid beta of forming sticky, toxic plaques between neurons, killing them and triggering a series of events that made the brain waste away. The amyloid cascade hypothesis was simple. Scott Small is the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Columbia University. The pharmaceutical industry, and it's a milestone, just started paying attention to Alzheimer's in earnest. Can we stop this horrible disease? Because the amyloid hypothesis was so seductively compelling. The idea of aiming drugs at the amyloid plaques to stop or prevent the progression of the disease took the field by storm. Decades of work and billions of dollars went into funding clinical trials of dozens of drug compounds that targeted amyloid plaques. Yet almost none of the trials showed meaningful benefits to patients with the disease. That is, until September of 2022 when the pharmaceutical giants Biogen and ASI announced that in a phase three clinical trial, patients taking the anti-amyloid drug lecanemab showed 27% less decline in their cognitive health than patients taking a placebo did. The data was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Alzheimer's disease generally progresses over 25 years. Paul Azen is a professor of neurology at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. He says the hope is that lecanemab, when given to people with early-stage Alzheimer's disease, will slow the progression by extending the milder stages of the disease. One more year at your job, one more year that you can manage your finances, one more year that you can drive a car, one more year before you need to be institutionalized. I mean, 
to me, that's really important. Some are less hopeful that the results will show any meaningful difference. Here's Riti Patira again. It's similar. It's nothing different in terms of what this showed as opposed to what we saw in the earlier trials. On the scale the companies used to test the efficacy, calculated from interviews with the patient and their caregivers on their memory, judgment, and other cognitive functions, the results were statistically significant but modest. Eric Larson is a professor of medicine at the University of Washington. He says statistical significance, which means the results were likely not due to chance, does not always equate to clinical significance. For example, the difference in the rate of decline might be unnoticeable to caregivers. We want to find the important difference from a statistical point of view, but we also want to find an important difference from a clinical point of view. And my take is that, although we don't know, the clinically important difference is probably not there. What's more, reports of brain swelling in some participants and two deaths, which the companies deny are due to the drug, has some concern about the safety of the drug. But Alzheimer's medicine is a field more accustomed to disappointment than success, and even the announcement by Roche that a second, much-awaited drug, gantanarumab, failed in phase three clinical trials didn't diminish the excitement over lecanemab news. Do these results mean the amyloid cascade hypothesis was right? Not necessarily. It does suggest to some researchers that with more coaxing, targeting amyloid could still lead to effective therapeutics. Rudy Tanzi is an investigator at Massachusetts General Hospital. I'm thrilled. I mean, I think the reason why it worked was the size of the trial and the design and finally getting the signal you need by using very early stage patients. So is this like, you know, a home run? No, it's a small effect, but it's proof of concept that if you hit amyloid and you hit it early enough, even in these patients who are already in the earliest stages of memory impairment, that you can get an effect. To many other skeptical researchers, the small to non-existent effect sizes in these trials and earlier ones suggest that amyloid plaques are not the cause of the disease. Scott Small calls amyloid more the smoke than the fire. The underwhelming effects of lecanemab neither surprised nor impressed Ralph Nixon, the director of research at the Center for Dementia Research at the Nathan S. Klein Institute for Psychiatric Research in New York. The impact is so minuscule. If that was your goal, to reach this point in order to claim victory of that hypothesis, you're using the lowest possible bar I can think of. (laughs) Nixon has worked in the trenches of Alzheimer's disease research since the earliest days of the amyloid cascade hypothesis. But he's been a leader in exploring an alternative model for what causes the disease's dementia. It's one of many other possible models that many researchers say were largely ignored in favor of the amyloid explanation, despite its lack of useful results. A stream of recent findings has made it clear that other mechanisms may be at least as important as the amyloid cascade as causes of Alzheimer's disease. Donald Weaver is a co-director of the Crimbrill Brain Institute in Toronto. I am not as negative as most people. You know, there's these people who go, the amyloid hypothesis is dead. 
I think that that is overstepping. I would say that the amyloid hypothesis is insufficient. It has received extensive study for three decades, and it's worthy of continuing study. But to date, it has not yielded a meaningful therapeutic. And I think that the door is open for alternative ideas and alternative theories. The emerging new models of the disease are more complex than the amyloid explanation. And because they're still taking shape, it's not clear yet how some of them may eventually translate into therapies. But because they focus on fundamental mechanisms affecting the health of cells, what's being learned about them might someday pay off in new treatments for a wide variety of medical problems, possibly including some key effects of aging. Many in the field, including some who still stand behind the amyloid cascade hypothesis, agree that there's a more complex story taking place in the folds of the brain. While these alternate ideas were once hushed and thrown under the rug, now the field has broadened its attention. On the wall of Ralph Nixon's office hangs a set of microscopy photos, images from an Alzheimer's patient's brain that were snapped almost 30 years ago in his lab. Nixon points to a bulky purple blob in the photos. He says that in the 1990s, because of preconceptions about amyloid plaques, he and his colleagues couldn't recognize the blobs for what they really were. Even if they had, and if they had told anyone, he says they would have been run out of the field back then. Nixon says he's been able to survive long enough to now have people believe them. Scientists studying Alzheimer's disease often bring a deep passion to their work, not just because it's addressing a major health burden, but because it's one that often strikes close to home. That's certainly the case for Kyle Travaglini, an Alzheimer's researcher at the Allen Institute for Brain Science in Seattle. On a hot August day in 2011, when Travaglini was starting his freshman year at the University of California, Los Angeles, he welcomed his grandparents for a college visit. As a boy, he'd spent many happy hours walking with his grandmother in San Diego's Japanese Friendship Garden, so it seemed only right that they should tour the UCLA campus together. I remember distinctly showing her and my grandfather like around UCLA because I was really excited about that. My high school graduation and that tour was when I really first started to notice like I would tell her something or explain like, oh, this is this building. And then she'd ask again and, and multiple times. And I was like, oh, like something is really kind of wrong. In the following years, Travaglini's grandmother often made excuses. I think she was really good at masking where she'd be like, oh, of course. Yeah, I'm sorry. I think she eventually started to like recognize it, but I don't think she ever really wanted us to see it. It was a lot of masking, like, oh, yeah, no, I'm just, you know, being a little forgetful or I'm tired. Eventually, Travaglini's grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, just as her own mother and tens of millions of other people around the world have been. His grandfather initially resisted the idea that she had Alzheimer's disease, as spouses of patients often do. Then Travaglini says that denial turned into frustration. He was really frustrated that there wasn't really anything they could do. And then he was also really frustrated that eventually he'd have to like leave his home. And actually, like when my grandmother finally went into memory care, that was really challenging for him. And he actually left the house and moved into the same facility, not in memory care at the time. Old age doesn't guarantee the development of Alzheimer's disease, but it's the greatest risk factor. 
And as the global average lifespan increases, Alzheimer's disease endures as a major public health burden and one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of modern medicine. Starting with memory impairment and cognitive decline, the disease eventually affects behavior, speech, orientation, and even a person's ability to move. Because the living human brain is complex and experiments on it are largely impossible, scientists often have to rely on rodent models of the disease that don't always translate to humans. What's more, patients with Alzheimer's disease often have other types of dementias at the same time. That makes it difficult to tease apart what exactly is happening in the brain. Though we still don't know what causes Alzheimer's, our knowledge about the disease has grown dramatically since 1898, when Emil Redlich, a doctor at the psychiatric clinic in Vienna, first used the word plaques to describe what he saw in the brains of two patients diagnosed with senile dementia. In 1907, German psychiatrist Alois Alzheimer described the presence of plaques, tangles, and atrophy visualized by a silver staining technique in the brain of a woman who died at the age of 55 from pre-senile dementia. That same year, Czech psychiatrist Oskar Fischer reported 12 cases of plaques, which he referred to as drusen, after the German word for a cavity in a rock with an interior lined with crystals. By 1912, Fisher had identified dozens of dementia patients with plaques, and he had described their cases in unprecedented detail. Yet Emil Krapelin, a founder of modern psychiatry and Alzheimer's boss at a psychiatric clinic in Munich, Germany, decreed that the condition was to be named Alzheimer's disease. Fisher and his contributions were lost for decades after he was arrested by the Gestapo in 1941. Fisher was Jewish in a Nazi-occupied area. He was taken to a political prison, where he died at the hands of the Nazis. His work didn't come to light again until the 2000s, when another researcher found it in the archives of Charles University in Prague. In the decades after World War II, more knowledge about the disease trickled in. But it remained a niche area of interest. Eric Larson recalls that when he was a medical student in the 1970s, Alzheimer's disease was still mostly ignored by researchers, as was aging in general. It was accepted that when you got old, you stopped being able to remember things. The treatments for these conditions of old age could be harrowing. Larson says it was a different time. People were tied in chairs and people were given drugs that made them worse. And everybody thought that dementia was just a consequence of getting old. People called it senility or senile dementia. But all of that changed in the 1980s when a series of papers established the critical finding that the brains of elderly patients with dementia and the brains of younger patients with pre-senile dementia looked the same. Physicians and researchers realized that dementia might not be just a consequence of old age, but a discreet and potentially treatable disease. Then attention started pouring in, says Larson. So the field has just been bursting at the seams for decades now. At first, there were many vague, untestable theories about what might be causing Alzheimer's disease. These theories ranged from viruses and aluminum exposure to environmental toxins and a nebulous idea called accelerated aging. 
A turning point came in 1984 when George Glenner and Kane Wong of the University of California, San Diego, discovered that the plaques in Alzheimer's disease and the plaques in the brains of people with Down syndrome were made of the same amyloid beta protein. The formation of amyloid plaques in Down syndrome was genetically driven, so might that mean the same was true of Alzheimer's disease? Where this amyloid beta came from was unclear. Maybe it was released by the neurons themselves, or maybe it came from elsewhere in the body and infiltrated the brain through the blood. But suddenly, researchers had a likely suspect to blame for the neurodegeneration that ensued. Glenner and Wong's paper drew attention to the idea that amyloid might be a root cause of Alzheimer's, but it took a seminal genetic finding by John Hardy's laboratory at St. Mary's Hospital Medical School in London to electrify the research community. It began one night in 1987, as Hardy was sifting through a pile of letters on his desk. Because he had been trying to uncover genetic mutations that might lead to Alzheimer's disease, he and his team had posted an advertisement in an Alzheimer's Society newsletter. They were seeking the assistance of families in which more than one individual had developed Alzheimer's disease. A flood of letters arrived in response, and they quickly piled up on Hardy's desk. The letter from Carol Jennings was the very first I got, but by the time I got to answer them, it was at the bottom of the pile. Carol Jennings was a schoolteacher in Nottingham. She wrote, I think my family could be of use. Jennings' father and several of her aunts and uncles had all been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in their mid-50s. The researchers sent a nurse to collect blood samples from Jennings and her kin, whom Hardy called Family 23 in his work because Jennings' letter was the 23rd that he read. Over the next few years, they sequenced the family's genes, searching for a shared mutation that could be the Rosetta Stone for understanding the condition. On November 20, 1990, Hardy and his teammates stood in the office of their lab, listening to their colleague describe the latest results of her genetic sequencing. We knew which samples we should be looking in, and Marie-Christine Chartier-Hallam was the person doing the sequencing, and as soon as she found the mutation, we knew what it meant. As soon as she found it. Jennings' family had a mutation in the gene for the amyloid precursor protein, or APP, which researchers had isolated for the first time only a few years before. As its name suggests, APP is the molecule that enzymes break apart to form amyloid beta. The mutation caused an overproduction of the amyloid. Hardy hurried home that day. I remember going back and telling my wife that the data that we'd found today was going to change our lives. A few months later, Hardy and his team told Carol Jennings' family. We organized a family conference before the paper came out. Somewhere around Christmas, we organized a meeting in Nottingham in the geriatric clinic in the hospital. About six or seven of us went to Nottingham and presented the work to the whole family. One sad thing I remember is that there was one sister who was in the early stages of disease and kept saying, thank goodness I haven't got it, when all her brothers and sisters and relatives knew that she had it. 
Hardy says Jennings' family was mildly religious. They said that maybe they were chosen to help in the research. Of course, it's been a terrible affliction for the family, but I think they felt that they had really done something useful with this horrible disease. The following February, Hardy and his team published their results in Nature, cluing in the world to the APP mutation and its significance. The form of Alzheimer's disease that the Jennings family has is rare, affecting only around 600 families worldwide. People with a parent who carries the mutation have a 50% chance of inheriting it and developing the condition. If they do, it's almost certain that they will develop it before the age of 65. No one knew how far the similarities might go between the Jennings kind of inherited Alzheimer's disease and the much more common late-onset form that typically occurs after the age of 65. Still, the discovery was suggestive. The following year, over a long weekend, Hardy and his colleague Gerald Higgins typed up a landmark perspective that used the term amyloid cascade hypothesis for the first time. I wrote what I thought was a simple article saying, basically, if amyloid causes the disease in this case, maybe amyloid is the cause in all cases. And that was how it started. And I have to say, I wrote the article, which was published in Science, over a weekend without any redrafting at all. Hardy didn't foresee how popular it would become. It's now been cited over 10,000 times. That paper and an earlier review published by Dennis Selko, a researcher at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, became foundational documents for the new amyloid cascade hypothesis. Hardy thinks back to those early days. Certainly when I started, and I'm talking now 1992-1993, I thought that anti-amyloid therapies would be like a magic bullet. And certainly I don't think that now. I don't think anybody thinks that. Researchers soon started flocking to the beauty and simplicity of the amyloid cascade hypothesis and a collective goal of targeting the plaques and getting rid of them as a remedy for Alzheimer's started to emerge. Ralph Nixon remembers the field in the early 1990s. Word of mouth in the field has sort of dictated how the messaging has persisted and become so completely monolithic in its thinking. But Nixon and some others weren't convinced. The idea that amyloid killed neurons only after it was secreted and formed deposits between the cells made less sense to him than the possibility that the amyloid accumulated inside neurons and killed them before it was released. Nixon was following the thread of a different theory at Harvard Medical School. At the time, Harvard had one of the very first brain banks in the nation. When anyone died and donated their brain to science, it was cut into slices and frozen at minus 80 degrees Celsius for later examination. Nixon says it was a huge operation, and one that made Harvard a hub for Alzheimer's research. One day, Nixon switched on a microscope and aimed it at a slice of brain stained with antibodies against certain enzymes. Through the microscope's light, he could see that the antibodies were congregating on plaques outside the cells. It was immensely surprising. 
The enzymes in question were usually only seen in the organelles called lysosomes. Nixon says that suggested that the lysosome was abnormal and was leaking out these enzymes. Belgian biochemist Christian de Duve, who discovered lysosomes in the 1950s, sometimes referred to them as suicide bags because they're instrumental in a vital process called autophagy, or self-eating. Lysosomes are membrane vesicles holding an acidic slurry of enzymes that break apart obsolete molecules, organelles, and anything else the cell doesn't need anymore. This includes potentially harmful misfolded proteins and pathogens. Autophagy is an essential process, but it's especially critical for neurons because unlike nearly all the other cells in the body, mature neurons don't divide and replace themselves. They must be able to survive for a lifetime. Were parts of the adjacent neurons degenerating and leaking the enzymes? Were the neurons falling apart entirely? Whatever was happening, it hinted that the plaques were not simply products of amyloid accumulating in the space between neurons and killing them. Something might be going wrong inside the neurons themselves, maybe even before the plaques formed. But Selko and other colleagues at Harvard didn't share Nixon's enthusiasm about the lysosomal findings. Still, they weren't hostile to the idea. They all stayed collegial. Nixon even served on the thesis committee for Tansy, who had named the APP gene and been one of the first to isolate it, and who had become an ardent advocate for the amyloid cascade hypothesis. Here's Nixon again. So all of these people were friends on one level, and we just had different views. So I didn't get any direct criticism. It was more that, okay, you're doing very fundamental work, and that has its own intrinsic merits. We personally don't think it's as relevant to Alzheimer's as the A-beta story. A-beta, meaning amyloid beta. Nixon was hardly the only one nurturing alternatives to the amyloid cascade hypothesis. Some researchers thought that the answer might lie in the tau tangles, abnormal bundles of proteins inside neurons that are also hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. They're even more closely linked to the cognitive symptoms than amyloid plaques are. Others thought that excessive or misplaced immune activity might be inflaming and damaging delicate neural tissue. Still, others began suspecting dysfunctions in cholesterol metabolism or in the mitochondria that power neurons. But notwithstanding the range of alternative theories, by the end of the 1990s, the amyloid cascade hypothesis was the clear darling of the biomedical research establishment. Funding agencies and pharmaceutical companies were beginning to pour billions into the development of anti-amyloid treatments and clinical trials. At least in terms of relative funding, the alternatives were swept under the carpet. It's worth considering why. Major elements of the amyloid hypothesis were still a cipher, such as where the amyloid came from and how it killed neurons. But the idea was in some ways gloriously specific. It pointed to a molecule. It pointed to a gene. It pointed to a strategy. Get rid of these plaques to stop the disease. To everyone desperate to end the misery of Alzheimer's, it at least offered a specific plan of action. 
In contrast, other theories were still relatively shapeless, in no small part because they hadn't gotten as much attention. Faced with the choice of either chasing cures based on amyloid or pursuing a nebulous something more than amyloid, the medical and pharmaceutical communities made what seemed like the rational choice. John Hardy says it's easy to see why. It's difficult to target. It's very expensive to do clinical trials, so you can do very few of them. The drug companies can do very few of them, phase three trials. So, you know, part of it is there's a kind of Darwinian competition of ideas about which ones are going to be tested. And the amyloid hypothesis won that Darwinian competition. Between 2002 and 2012, 48% of the Alzheimer's drugs under development and 65.6% of the clinical trials were focused on amyloid beta. A mere 9% of the drugs were aimed at tau tangles, the only targets other than amyloid that were considered potential causes of the disease. All the rest of the drug candidates aimed to protect neurons from degeneration, to cushion against the effects of the disease after it started. Alternatives to the amyloid cascade hypothesis were scarcely in the picture. If only the amyloid-focused drugs had worked. It didn't take long for disappointing results to start rolling in from the drug trials and experimental tests of the amyloid hypothesis. In 1999, the pharmaceutical company Elon created a vaccine that was meant to train the immune system to attack amyloid protein. But the company stopped the trial in 2002 because some patients receiving the vaccine developed dangerous brain inflammation. In the following years, several companies tested the effects of synthetic antibodies against amyloid and found that they caused no changes in cognition in the Alzheimer's patients receiving them. Other drug trials took aim at the enzymes that cleaved amyloid beta from the parent APP protein, and some tried to clear out existing plaques in patients' brains. None of these worked as hoped. By 2017, 146 drug candidates for treating Alzheimer's disease had been deemed unsuccessful. Only four drugs had been approved, and they treated the symptoms of the disease, not its underlying pathology. The results were so disappointing that in 2018, Pfizer pulled out of Alzheimer's research. A 2021 review that compared the results of 14 of the major trials confirmed that reducing extracellular amyloid did not greatly improve cognition. There were also failures in trials that focused on targets other than amyloid, like inflammation and cholesterol, though there were far fewer trials for these alternatives and so far fewer failures. Jessica Young is an associate professor at the University of Washington. As she went through school, she first pursued cell biology, then neurobiology, and then finally Alzheimer's research specifically. She says she was always interested in what goes wrong in the brain as people age. And then what happened is I started working, you know, in the Alzheimer's field and just realizing like it was just so dismal, like trial after trial after trial was failing. And I was like, why are people still doing the same thing? (laughs) Young looked at it as a big puzzle to unravel. Those years, I just remember reading about the failure of every single Alzheimer's trial. And I was 
it was like really disheartening to a younger scientist who really wanted to try to make a difference. Like, how do we get over this? It's not working. But there was one brief, bright spot. In 2016, an early trial of aducanumab, a drug developed by Biogen, showed promise. Researchers reported in Nature that the drug reduced amyloid plaques and slowed the cognitive decline of Alzheimer's patients. But in 2019, Biogen shut down their Phase three clinical trial of the drug, saying it didn't work. The following year, after reanalyzing the data and concluding that aducanumab did work in one of the trials after all, at least modestly in a subset of patients, Biogen requested approval for the drug from the Food and Drug Administration. The FDA approved aducanumab in 2021 over the objections of its scientific advisors, who argued that its benefits seemed too marginal to outweigh its risks. Even several researchers who were loyal to the amyloid hypothesis were infuriated by the decision. Medicare decided not to cover the cost of the drug, so the only people taking aducanumab are in clinical trials or able to pay for it out of pocket. After three decades of global research primarily centered on the amyloid hypothesis, aducanumab is the only approved drug that aims at the underlying neurobiology to slow the progression of the disease. Here's Nixon again. You can have the most beautiful hypothesis, but if it doesn't play out with therapeutic efficacy, then it's not worth anything. What do you do when clinical trials for Alzheimer's treatments fail? Join us for part two of this story in our next episode, which drops in two weeks. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Yasmin Saplakolu's full article, What Causes Alzheimer's? Scientists are rethinking the answer, on our website, quantamagazine.org. Explore science mysteries in the quantum book, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, published by the MIT Press. Available now at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore. Also, make sure to tell your friends about the Quantum Magazine Science Podcast and give us a positive review or follow where you listen. It helps people find this podcast. (music) 